So today we're going to end our 12 Apostles series. We've been talking about the 12 Apostles, and we'd love for you guys to stand up and read this last time our memory verse, and we're going to learn from one of the Apostles. His name is Thomas today. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 1, we read our final memory verse for this sermon series, and it says this, Jesus called, in chapter 10, verse 1, his 12 disciples together and gave them authority to cast out evil spirits and to heal every kind of disease and illness. And here are the name of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, also called Peter, then Andrew, Peter's brother, James, son of Zebedee, John, James's brother, Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, Matthew, the tax collector, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who later betrayed him. Now, here's what we're going to do is, if I pray that God will use me, if you pray that God will open up your heart, you will hear and watch God work. I promise you, he can speak. If you're willing, and you're open, if you're willing to open up your ears and your heart, he will speak deeply into your soul. So, so as I pray, you pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, we come before you. And Lord, as we take this journey to a new location, as we move into a place, I pray that you will put it upon our hearts regularly to pray for favor in the community, for the council board and the planner, and favor through someone that owns a building that would want to lease us or sell us or even give us a building, Father. We pray, God, today that you will speak to us, that you will destroy our doubts, and that you will build us up in greater faith. We love you, King Jesus, and all God's people said, amen. amen. Go ahead and be seated. Today we're going to talk about the, uh, the Apostle Thomas, and really what we know, what he is known for is doubting Thomas. The question that I want to ask at the beginning, and hopefully you'll be able to answer this on your own, and hopefully I will answer it, is this. Is Thomas to us a failure, or is he an example? When we look at the scripture, we need to ask ourselves, is Thomas, by what we know him, a failure, or is he really an example for us? Most of us, if I said, hey, Roy, you're acting like Thomas, you would go, that's an insult to me. You can't call me Doubting Thomas. Probably rude. We would say that Thomas and being linked to him would be considered an insult because he was a failure by the way that we see him. We don't know much about Thomas. We don't really know much about who he was. And like most of the apostles, six or seven of the apostles, they don't have much writing and much engagement of what they did outside of the church and within the church. There's just a few places of text. So the only thing that we know about Don and Thomas was that when Jesus rose from the grave, he didn't believe him. And because of that, he gets a bad rap. He seldom referred to as the Apostle Thomas. And today I want to challenge you. Is Doubting Thomas the appropriate name? I challenge you that there might be a few other names that he might be called other than Doubting Thomas. Thomas, one of the twelve, like many of the other apostles, had another name. His name was Didymus, which we see in John 11 and John 20. And really that's the Greek equivalent to the Hebrew name Thomas. And, and it, both names mean twin. So he had a twin. Any twins in the house? Oh, sorry about that. I was thinking, oh, there's got to be someone. Um, but so we don't know the twin's name. It's not in the Bible. There's no extra, extra biblical stuff that can tell us, but we know he was a twin, or we assume that he was a twin because he was named Didymus, which means twin. In, in the synoptic gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, those synoptic means they're very similar. They're, the, the three gospels are very much the same, unlike John is much different. He's only mentioned in lists like we just read in Matthew chapter 10. 
In John, he's mentioned three times, and two times he's got a significant role, and we're going to discuss all three times today. Finally, tradition or extra-biblical readings show us that Thomas, uh, at one point, went to Parthia or India. I think we have a picture of it. And at the end of his life, he was martyred, like all the other apostles except um, Judas. Now, this is a list, if you look to the left, where all the apostles went. And at the very bottom, we think that Thomas probably went to India and presented the gospel and ultimately died there because of his faith. Now, today we're going to talk about doubting for a little bit, and then we're going to try and figure out, is doubting Thomas the proper name, and would he be an example to us, or is he a, a, a failure in the way that we recognize him? Now, before we do that, I want to talk a little bit about doubt. On April, on, on um, Palm Sunday, we talked about the death of doubt, and as I was listening to it, I said, well, we'll talk and take a little bit different direction. There's a guy named George Barna, and he does a lot of Christian research, and he did a bunch of research on doubt. So let me give you some of the numbers that he found about uh, doubt. He said that Christians regularly have doubt. It's not unusual for a Christian to experience spiritual doubt. He says 66% of Christians experience uh, spiritual doubt uh, normally, 26% of those had spiritual doubt at that particular moment, and 19% of them had doubt, and they went to church 40-plus times a year. So they were in church almost every week, and they still had doubt. So the church wasn't building them up. It was actually just creating a, this mindset of not changing their doubt. We see doubt all throughout the Bible, and we see a bunch of people, the fathers of faith, that had doubt. Moses and and Abraham and Sarah both had doubt. If you want to look it up, Moses uh, had doubt in Exodus chapter 3 and 4. And in Genesis 16, we see Abraham and Sarah both have doubt. Some of the apostles had doubt. Peter had doubt, Matthew 14 and Matthew 26. And then we see today we're going to talk about doubting Thomas in John chapter 20. Barna says this about men versus women. Men have doubt 32%. Women a little bit more faithful, 20%. Let's give it up for the women. Well, that was pretty sad. Here's another one that's very interesting about doubt. It says the higher the education, the more doubt. There's 37% that had a bachelor, master, or a doctorate degree had doubt. The less education, a high school or, or, or more, had 19% doubt. Any millennials in the house? Yeah, nobody ever agrees with that. Uh, let's throw some millennials under the bus right now. I love that. Millennial is 23 to 37. It's that generation. It says since they have grown in this secular, pluralistic culture. Pluralistic means multiple, more than two authorities, God and the government. And so since they've grown up in this secular, pluralistic uh, culture, they have two times more doubt than any other generation that they've measured. That's sad because they're taking over the church and there's a lot of doubt and we need to help the millennials bridge that gap. Here's the final thing that George Barner writes about doubt, which I think is really interesting. At the end of it, it says, as they were interviewing Christians, it says, as a Christian was uh, facing spiritual trials or trauma or what we call a, a crisis, a faith crisis in their life, Christians over and over stopped going to church, stopped reading the Bible and stopped praying. You would think it would be the opposite, 
But today, what's happening as Christians go through a spiritual trial, they stop reading, they stop praying, and they stop fellowshipping. And the truth is, one of the best things that you can do, and it's not because I want you to be here on Sunday, is get in fellowship. Because that fellowship will help you through that trial and into that place so that you can feel healthy and right again. When you do it on your own and distant from God, it will create even more doubt. Doubt is compounded by the fact that believers in the 21st century, that's all of us in this room, live in a world where we see our spiritual life and our secular life or our worldly life in two different places. They're two different things. We have this double-minded mindset. We see this false division between my godly work or the stuff I do with God and then my life outside of God. There's this popular misconception that our relationship with God is only related to church activities and church events and church service. And, we, and it, that creates a divide in our heart. The enemy, whatever you want to call him, has tricked us into thinking there is a secular, neutral ground that God is neither for nor against in our hearts. And we don't really need to invite God into that space. We kind of have like a Switzerland place in our soul. That God's not really involved, and that's just not true. That's false. But the enemy has tricked us to say, oh, God doesn't really need to be in the, in, in the involvement of my music or my movies or, you know, what I do at work and how I communicate. That's just the way I work. That's the world as it is. That's just not true. A pastor, John Mark Cormer, writes, the cosmic, gargantuan, 24-7 kingdom of God cannot be shrunk down to a few hundred people singing a few songs in a nice building for an hour every week. If that's all your faith is, you're on life support and you're trending towards dying faith, uh, spiritually. And I'm not saying that to scare you. I'm just telling you we say that a lot because you need more of God, not less of God. And it's important to have that in your life. I don't think that's God's plan that we have to do everything in an hour. We have to train your kids, make them better, disciplined, respect mom and dad because that's a commandment. Make them uh, smart, knowledgeable, and they're more respectful. And do all the discipleship and do all of the fellowship and do all the entertainment and have great jokes and do all these wonderful things in less than 45 minutes. It's not possible. And if you come 20 or 30 times a a year, you're, you're missing on half of it. God wants to do more. I doubt that's God's plan. So today we're going to look at Thomas and we're going to talk about doubting Thomas, but we're going to try and change his name. I think together as a congregation, when we open up the text, we can see that he's more than a doubting Thomas, and he's more than what we would consider an apostle Thomas. He actually has some other things that he's known for. The first time that we meet Thomas is in John. The other gospels just have his na- has his name listed. We see him come in John chapter 11. Here... The news comes to Jesus about his best friend Lazarus, who's very sick. And his sisters, Mary and Martha, are very desperate for Jesus to come and heal him and help him so he doesn't die. Now, Jesus, for whatever reason, decides to continue to do ministry and not run to go meet his buddy Lazarus. And over a couple of days, Lazarus dies. And one moment out of nowhere, the disciples say, Jesus said, hey, we should go to Judea and see Lazarus. He's died. Now... This created conflict with them. The apostles heard this and they were upset. And they weren't upset because Lazarus had died. They were upset because they were going to go back to Judea. And they said the last time they were in Judea, the Jews tried to kill you, Jesus. They wanted to stone you. And if you go back, they very well might succeed this time. So the apostles tried to stop Jesus from going back to Judea. 
fearing for his life and also fearing for their life as well, right? And that's kind of how we make decisions in fear and in doubt. Don't go, Jesus, but also don't take me there because I don't want to be dead or killed or stoned through that process. And at that moment, John chapter 11, verse 16, uh, Thomas comes into the picture in the gospel and fully realizing the danger that is, that is before him going into Judea, it says, uh, verse 16, Thomas nicknamed the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us go to and die with Jesus. So all the other apostles are saying, let's not go. And Thomas, all of a sudden, makes this statement, hey, let us go to and die with Jesus. To me, that doesn't sound like doubt. To me, that sounds like great, yeah, faith. But we, we know him as Doubting Thomas. But because we haven't really studied him as a whole, we don't see that this is a clear expression of his love for Jesus. He's saying, hey, if people are going to stone Jesus, we're going to go with him and let's die all together. That's a pretty awesome statement. It's not a doubting statement. It's a strong faith statement. John 15, 13 says this, and it must be something that Thomas knew. It says, greater love has no man than this to lay his life down for a friend. There's no greater thing to lay your life down for your brother, your sister in Christ. Thomas understood this, and he said, let us go, and if we need to die, we will die with Jesus. Thomas loved Jesus so much, he was willing to be right alongside with him. This statement takes great courage because a lot of us don't want to be put in risk, not only for our faith, but in life in general. Instead of calling Thomas the apostle or Thomas the doubter, we should call him the risk taker. Thomas the risk taker because he makes this great risk faith, faith statement to challenge uh, his apostles and to challenge us. Maybe we should be more risky in our faith and maybe that risky faith will help our doubt. Think about the risk that you have taken just in your simple walk with Jesus Christ. Was there a risk for you to accept Jesus one day? To stand up and, and walk forward or check a box or receive the Lord? There was a risk. Like, what happens if it's not true? What happens if everything that they're saying is false? There's a risk there. Is it a risk to follow Jesus and to carry your Bible and walk around school or walk around a jailhouse or walk around the, your work with a Bible and say you're a Christian? There's a risk there. There's a risk to joining a church. The church hurts a lot of people. Do you realize that? It doesn't do it intentionally, I don't think. Some might. But people get wounded because people that come to church are wounded. And sometimes they get wounded at church. It's a risk to join a church. It's a risk to give money to a church. What are they going to do with it? How much Starbucks can they really buy? Right? Unfortunately, I'm there quite a bit. It's a risk. It's a risk to tell your friend about Jesus. It's a risk to invite him to church. There's a lot of risks involved in our faith. And if you're really struggling and you don't feel connected, it's a risk to challenge yourself and to put God before your life and say, I want to grow in my faith because you don't know if it's really going to happen. There's a risk involved. Think about history and all the risks that have been taken to make the kingdom of God what it is today. And I guarantee you, some of those people that took the risk probably had doubt like we see Thomas. Here's some of the three great risk takers. Moses stood up against the greatest military of all time in that moment in the world, and he led his Israelites out of Egypt. David stood before Goliath, who was two and a half times his size, and he had a, a sling and a relationship with God. 
And this uneducated fisherman named Peter stood up on the day of Pentecost and took a risk filled with the Holy Spirit to tell all these people about Jesus. And there were thousands of people there. And it said 3,000 people came to the Lord. Paul preached to the Roman Empire, the emperor, and to the leaders around him. Martin Luther nailed the copy of his complaints on the church door. John Wesley to ordain, uh, chose to ordain lay people, non-professional people, to preach in America. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a German theologian, called Adolf Hitler's Germany sinful. And Mother Teresa risked her life hanging out with lepers and leper colonies. That's scary. But that's what they do for the glory of God. No Christian is really going to grow and walk out of doubt and into a place of greater faith unless they take risk. Thomas took a risk, and he should be named risk taker. The next time we see uh, Thomas is in Matthew chapter 14. And at that moment in Matthew chapter 14, Jesus is just finishing washing the feet, and they've had communion, and he says one is going to betray him. And now in 14, he's giving this beautiful speech about going to heaven and what their life is going to be like. John 14, 1 says, Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and also trust in me. There was more than enough room in my father's home. If this were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? When everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be where I am where me where I am and you will know the way to where I'm going and at that moment as he's making this beautiful statement about heaven and preparing a place all of a sudden Thomas interrupts in verse 5 and he's like Lord no we don't know Lord Thomas said we have no idea where you're going and we we don't know the way now, that might be a little bit rude, but here's the thing. Not only is he a risk taker, he's also asking questions and inquiring because he wants to know more. He t- this tells us a lot about who Thomas was. Anybody old enough to remember the old E.F. Hutton commercials? E.F. Hutton. When E.F. Hutton speaks, inquiring minds want to know. Yeah, yeah you got to listen. <laughs> There's two, the 70s and the 80s. You got to go back a little bit. But he was an inquiring mind. And it said everybody wants to listen. And so here's the thing. Thomas not only was a risk taker, he was also an inquirer. He was interested. He wanted to ask questions. He was confused. Have you ever told somebody uh, directions? Like a couple weeks ago, we went to, uh, to do baptisms at the beach. And everybody's like, go to Mother's Beach. Well, the name changed like four years ago. So it's not on MapQuest, it's not on Google. And so everybody's looking at you going, I don't know where it is. And just like Thomas is like, I'm confused, where's Mother's Beach? He's like, Lord, I don't know where you're going. I don't understand what you're doing. And I am not embarrassed enough to to say, I don't get it. Any teachers in the place? You know what they say about kids that ask questions? They said, if somebody raises their hand and asks a question, more than half the class has that same thought. They're just not willing to ask the question. Here, Thomas asks the question. He's inquiring, Lord, we have no idea. I am so confused, Lord. And then Jesus said, well, I'm the way. I'm the truth, and I'm the life. And he kind of gives a little bit more clarity about what Thomas is engaging and asking. He just wants to know more. He had a limited understanding, and he wanted to know more, real truth. The world needs more inquiring minds and hearts and souls that are longing for more knowledge about Jesus. Far too many of us are satisfied with this 
superficial, impersonal, limited seeking, limited understanding of God. And we need to get into a deeper level. We've got to dig into our faith and get deeper into who Jesus really is. When we do limited investigation and limited seeking, we don't have full understanding. But we want full understanding but you're not going to get full understanding. As we are are looking at a new building over the last few weeks, we're asking ourselves the question, is this the right prudent move for the church? And over and over and over, another person, another woman, another person has confirmed that God wants us to move. And so as we have a little bit of doubt, God fills the doubt and fills that moment. And it's because we're inquiring that he wants to give us that answer. And that's what we see with Thomas. Don't you just want to ask Jesus sometimes personally, am I going in the right place? Am I on the right path? Am am I really doing what you want me to do? Isn't there a deeper place? Don't you just want to sit back? That's what Thomas is doing. Lord, I don't know what the way is. And Jesus says, well, I'm the way. Open up my word. I'm the truth. My word will give you truth. Live like my life, and you will have a life, and you will be in the right path. Somehow, some way, God will use that so that you and I and everyone who follows that path will be more righteous, and that means right living with God. So there's two names we have, risk taker and inquirer, and now let's talk about uh, that Easter Sunday. In John chapter 20, it's Easter Sunday. And Jesus is now gone. They go to the grave. Uh, Mary Magdalene runs. The grave is empty. He's not there. There's fear. There's excitement. There's a sighting. And one time Jesus looks like the gardener. There's angels there. The, The world is upside down because there's no Savior in the grave. And then verse, John 20, verse 19 says, that Sunday evening. The Greek in that Sunday evening actually says the first day of the week. If you've ever been to Israel, Israel actually first day of the week, their Monday morning is Sunday morning. They work on Sundays and they work all the way till Saturday. They work six days a week, the beginning of the week. And that's what it says. That Sunday evening, so the same night, the disciples were meeting behind locked doors because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. And suddenly Jesus was standing there among them. Peace be with you, he said. As he spoke, he showed them the wounds in his hand and his side. They were filled with joy when they saw the Lord. Again, he said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And then he breathed on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. If, if you forgive anyone's sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. That's an interesting place because the Holy Spirit's going to come in a, in, a, in a week or two, and it's going to have this day of Pentecost. But here they're getting a little bit of feeling of the Holy Spirit, and then they talk about the forgiveness of sins and the power that, that, that they had to forgive sins. Now, Thomas isn't there. Don't you hate missing out on important events? For whatever reason, Thomas isn't there. Here's what it says. One of the 12 disciples Thomas nicknamed the twin was not with the others and when Jesus came and then when he showed up he says they told him we have seen the Lord now here's the thing Thomas for whatever reason wasn't there I don't know why he wasn't there maybe at a PTA meeting maybe at a doctor's appointment maybe he got a letter in the mail for jury duty I don't know who does this but my wife got a letter in the mail yesterday and it said jury duty and she's like yes I always try and actually slip mine in the trash without looking at it. My wife's like, yes, jury duty. I'm like, who does that? What is wrong with her? 
for whatever reason, Thomas isn't there. And you know what? Ministry leaders, I don't know if you've ever been in ministry. It's probably a girl. It's probably just going by coffee bean to see if she's there working today. <laughs> whatever reason it is, Thomas happens to not be there. And I don't know about you. If I miss out on stuff, I get annoyed. I should have been there. There was something I could have gone to last night, but I was working, and a bunch of people at our church went to it. It was in, in Oxnard. It sounded really fun. I couldn't be there. I, I get annoyed. But here's, here's his reply. I won't believe it, this is Thomas, unless I see the nails, in, uh, the, the nail wounds in his hand and put my finger into them, ooh, and place my hand into the wound in his side. First of all, does anybody got, got any hand sanitizer? That makes me feel a little bit weird. I got some germ issues, so I wash my hands quite a bit and make sure. That's not healthy, by the way, so don't do that. But here's the doubting Thomas. This is what he's known for. It's like, I'm not going to believe it unless I stick my finger into your wounds. That's rude. And into your side. Let me ask you a question. Why is he doubting here? Have you ever asked, why is he doubting? Like, really think about what is he saying here? It's like, there's something going on. And I don't know about you, but if I miss out on something, I'm annoyed. I, I should have been there. I should have gone there. I, I knew I should have done something. I knew I should have worked harder at the earlier part of the week so I could have been there on Saturday night. I feel like there's a part of it that is annoyed. He's annoyed with himself. I shouldn't have gone and did my taxes or the PTA meeting or met that person. I should have been there when Jesus was there. Scripture says that he doubts, and we see it. And we look at it and go, oh, man, what a failure. Why is he doubting Jesus? Listen, we're looking at the story 2,000 years later, and we've heard the story over and over and over again. We look at it, yeah, like, duh, that's Jesus. What a loser doubting. But he's in real time, and it's unfolding. So that's the first thing. I think he's irritated with himself that he should have been there. The second thing is, no one has ever come back to life before. The only time that they came back to life was with Jesus, and he brought him back to life. Now Jesus is dead, and now he's alive. And so now what he's experiencing is, what are you talking about? He's alive. Nobody's done that. Houdini tried it. Anybody here from Houdini yet? No. He's dead. But Jesus said he was going to die and rose three days later, and now he's shown himself to the apostles, and Thomas is pissed. I should have been there. And the doubt, I don't know about you, but when I start doubting, a lot of times I'm doubting myself and not less than God. That's how I look at doubt. Maybe your doubt's bigger God, less than self, but I have learned, I've worked through, doubt, don't doubt God, doubt me. What happens if you got a text today that someone that you dearly loved recently passed, which I know there's a lot that's happened in this room, all of a sudden you get a call or text and said, hey, I'm alive, come see me. Well, the truth is we're not going to believe it until we see it. What do you mean you're alive? I was at your funeral, I was at your service, I was at your life celebration. That would blow you away, and that's basically what's happened. This has never happened. This isn't what like, oh, well, that happened last week, I don't believe it. This was a one-time thing, and he was experiencing some personal doubt, and I think it was more about himself than, uh, than, than Jesus. Unless we see something with our own eyes, hold it in our hand, unless we touch it, we have a hard time believing, right? That's why we have doubt as Christians. Because the essence of Christianity, the heart of the gospel is faith and hope. The heart of the gospel 
the centerpiece of it is faith and hope. Faith comes not by seeing, but having this heart experience with Christ. And in that moment, peace be with you should be a part of your daily walk. When you're in that trial, when you're in that faith struggle, in the middle of the spiritual darkness that you're experiencing, you need to have peace be with you deep within your soul and deep within your heart. That's what God wants to do, and that's what he will do if you allow him in. Don't exercise your doubt. Exercise your faith. Doubt is weakness. Faith is power. Doubt is disease in our life. Faith is healing in our life. Thomas was not only an inquirer and a risk taker. He's much more. Think about this thought. One of the worst feelings in the world is to doubt something that you thought was unquestionable. It's tough. Let me give you a horrible example, but this is one, especially if you've experienced it. If you've been in a relationship before and you've said vows and there was some form of adultery or cheating, you start to question every word that's ever been said. Was anything that you said true? And you start to question, and that becomes a miserable existence. And the only way you bring that together is the doubt needs to slip, sip side, side, what? Yeah, whatever. And, uh, and faith needs to rise up. That's how it works. If you let the doubt in, it will, take you over, it will take over and you'll never be healthy and you'll never trust. And that's hard to really imagine and deal with. Here's what it says. Eight days later, the disciples were together again. Eight days? Seriously? What do you think eight days felt like to Thomas? Miserable, agony. I can't believe it. All the other ones are walking around. We saw Jesus. You should have been there, bro. Thomas is like, oh, Eeyore kind of lifestyle. Eight days? Eight days later, they were together again. And this time, Thomas was with them. Praise God. The doors were locked again. Suddenly, and, uh, but suddenly, as before, Jesus was standing among them. Peace be with you, he said. Then he said to Thomas, put your fingers here and look at my hands. Put your hands into my wound, my wound in my side. And don't be faithless any longer. Believe. That's a powerful statement. Believe. Here I am. Don't be faithless anymore. Believe. And that would be a great thing for all of us. But that's not what our faith is uh, derived on. It's brought by something else. Jesus lovingly met Thomas at the exact point of his doubt. He lovingly met Don, Thomas and guided him back to faith. Do you know he'll do that with you? And he doesn't have to show up. He can do it in your prayer. He can do it in your car. He can do it in your bed. He can do it on the couch. He could do it right now and guide you back to a greater place of faith. If you take a risk and bring him in and inquire about that doubt, he will bring you in and he will take your struggles and your doubt and he will give you greater revelation and greater faith. Verse 28 says, my God and my Lord, Thomas exclaimed. And here's the third name and the last name. He's a proclaimer. After he sees the Lord and he shows him his wounds and he says, don't be a, a, a faithless believer. Believe in me, he says. Then Thomas's proclamation is, my God and my Lord. And this is one of the greatest statements that we see in the Bible. Because here, a human being now, Jesus has been saying this the whole time, that I am God and I am the Lord together in one. But now a human being realizes that he is God and he is the Lord and the resurrection brings them together. And now the full resurrection power is alive and well in the community of believers. 
My God and my Lord is now said for the first time by one of the apostles. And, and Jesus is now fully known as God and, and, and Savior as one. We call that the hypostatic union. And it's a powerful statement for all of us. Now greater faith can be achieved because we have a deeper revelation of who Christ really is. He's just not my ticket to heaven. He is also the God of the universe that has the ability to change and move and, 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 and move mountains even when the mountain's in my way. We were just singing that song. He can move the mountain. He's not only our ticket to heaven and the way, the truth, and the life, but he is God himself. And we need to understand that and worship and praise that. He's quoting, he's quoting a psalm, Psalm 35, verse 23, when you do like a, a, a search in depth on this. Here's what it says. Wake up, rise to my defense, take up my case, my God and my Lord. He's making this same case. Thomas is saying, Lord, you are my God, you are my Lord. Come to my defense, make me right. I realized that I was lost and I was distant. I doubted myself, I doubted you, but I'm a risk taker. And I know more about you. I understand you. And I should have never doubted. He's making this claim. And at the end, he gives this confident hope that he is more than just our Savior. He is Yahweh. He is the great I am. And that's a powerful thing for us to understand. Verse 29 says, you believe because you have seen me. Thomas, you believe because you have seen me. And then he speaks to all of us that don't get to see him. Blessed are those who believe Without seeing me, everybody in this room that believes in Jesus Christ right now are blessed immensely more than Thomas because we believe because we haven't seen. We have to have that heart change, that heart shift, that experience that brings peace within me, even in the midst of my storm, in the midst of my doubt, in the midst of my struggle. If I have that heart change, I can then watch God work through that process and bring me to a better level of faith. The gospel says over a hundred times, believing is more important than seeing. Believe, believe, believe over a hundred times in all four gospels. When there's repetition like that, what does it mean? It's important. If we're doing an inductive Bible study and you go through all the gospels and circle believe every time, you're going to see it's about 112 times. And that means that we need to believe without seeing because it's important. There are going to be moments where God's not going to show up and you're just going to have to believe and ride through the process. Here's the last part I want to talk about and I want to give you one more piece of scripture. You know that Thomas's doubt didn't disqualify him? If you have doubt today, you know what? It doesn't disqualify you from being a believer and making it into heaven and growing in your faith. It doesn't disqualify you. It didn't disqualify him and it's not going to disqualify us. But here's what I want you to think about. If, if you really are doubting in your life, be a risk taker in your faith. Make a decision right now, this day, that I'm not going to go another step without inviting Jesus in and inquiring more about why am I struggling in this moment of doubt. And here's what I've learned, that I need to proclaim outside out loud, Jesus is Lord, my God and my Savior. When I proclaim out loud, when I pray, when I sing, and when I read and do things out loud, the devil flees. Amen. And doubt diminishes, and my faith increases. And your neighbors think you're weird. Who cares? Who cares what your neighbor thinks? 
You have no idea that they're saying, Lord, show me something visible that I can see. Maybe your neighbor who's not a believer wants to hear someone sing or pray or read out loud. And maybe you're the person that's supposed to do that out loud to show them that God is really moving. John seems like he's writing this in the, the, the book of John, 1 John chapter 5. It seems like he's communicating to Thomas. And here's what it says. Since we believe in human testimony, surely we can believe in the greater testimony that comes from God. Too often now, people were believing in human testimony. Hey, we've got to go see one of the apostles. He's still alive. He's preaching at this church. We all would run there because he was really alive and he was one of the humans that saw Jesus. But he's like, now you got to believe in God's testimony, not just human testimony as well. God testified about his son. Verse 10 says, all who believe in his son, of the son of God, know in their hearts that the testimony is true. That peace that resides deep within your heart is true. All who believe in the son know that this testimony is true. Those who don't believe are actually calling God a liar. Not a good place to be. Because they don't believe what God has done and testified about his son unbelief will get you out of the will of God and out of heaven doubt could actually bring you to a greater revelation and a greater statement of faith of who Christ is and how he is God and how he can transform and change whatever our struggles are verse 11 and 12 and this is what God has testified he has given us eternal life and this life is in his son Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have God's Son does not have life. If you don't know which way to go and if you have doubt, you need to proclaim out loud. You need to invite God in with some questions about your doubt. And you need to take a risk to follow whatever he says to do. Get into a Bible study. Join the church. Get deeper in, 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 in some level of servant. Dig in. Whatever he says, take that risk and do it. Maybe for the first time. Was Thomas a failure? Or was he an example? When we look at his names, he's more than a doubter. He was a risk taker. He was more than an apostle in the sense that he was inviting Christ into his doubt. And he was really a proclaimer for the first time, confessing that God is 100% man, 100% God. And it's all done in Jesus Christ. It would be easy for us to make him a doubter and kind of make him a failure. But the truth is, as Christians, we know he really is an example. We need to have the love that Thomas had for Jesus. A deep, sincere love to help us be risk takers in our faith. We need to have that courage and that risk to follow him wherever he wants us to go. Sometimes he asks us to go to different countries. Sometimes he challenges us to move different to different locations. Sometimes he challenges us to serve or take that class that, that Kim has or a Bible study or a discipleship class. We also need to pray that we will have these inquiring minds that want to know more about Jesus. You need to invite Jesus into your struggles, into your trials, into your problems, into your doubt. And let him fulfill you and build you on that doubt into a better place with your faith. And lastly, we need to proclaim who he really is. I have this saying, Romans 8, 31, in the midst of my doubt, in the midst of my struggles, when I'm broken, if God is for me, who can be against me? And I've said it a thousand times. And I will continue to say it because that brings me out of doubt. 
that brings me out of that scared seventh grade kid with floods into a greater place, into a deeper revelation of who he is. Let me close with a prayer. God sees obstacles. Faith sees the way. Doubt sees the darkest night. Faith sees the day. Doubt dreads to take a step. Faith soars on high. Doubt questions who believe. Faith answers, I. Let's just take a moment and pray. Father, I ask that you start to break down the walls of our doubt. That you allow us to be risky. That you allow us to invite Jesus in and ask him questions about our unbelief and the sin and struggle that we're having. And Lord, give us the wisdom and the words to proclaim who you are in our life, to walk us out of doubt and into greater faith. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus and you want to take that next step of faith, you want to recommit and change your life, we invite you to join the kingdom by saying a simple prayer. If that's you today, we'd love for you to join us. And make this statement of faith part of your daily walk. Repeat after me. Father, forgive me. Come into my heart. Come into my soul. And be my Lord and Savior. You died and you rose again for me. Get rid of my doubt, Lord, and build me in your faithful walk. Holy Spirit, take over my life. And teach me how to live a life for you, King Jesus. We love you and we praise you in the name above all names, Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, amen.